I woke up the next morning. I didn't have a job. Paula and I sat and had coffee. And I told her about my dream. And I asked her, I said, I wonder what it would have been like if we'd have taken that chance. She looked at me. We looked at each other and said, what the hell? Let's do it. So in the next few weeks, we ended up putting the house up for sale, sold a lot of our stuff, had the moving trailer come in, and then we moved out west. Welcome to Breaking Down Boxes. I'm Gene Marino with Acres Packaging. And I'm Joe Morelli with Houston Patterson and Lewisburg Printing Company. We have compelling conversations with successful entrepreneurs in the packaging space. We're super excited to have our next guest on the podcast, longtime friend of mine, someone I, I really admire in the industry, Jerry Frisch, Wasatch Container. He'll share just a wonderful story about a guy who grew very rapidly in a business, had an opportunity to buy it, only to be turned out into the cold. And uh, through a lot of self-reflection and an absolute a hell of a lot of sacrifice, went and, and started a business from scratch that's turned into a, quite an enterprise. From a personality standpoint, one of the bigger charismatic people in our industry that always has a great story, is always inquisitive, is always looking to get to know you better. And from my standpoint as a supplier to Jerry in Wasatch, seeing your success over the last 10 years has been incredible. Before we go back, to your days in Minnesota. Just jump into the 30-second elevator speech on what you guys are today at Wasatch Container. We are a company based in Salt Lake City. Currently, we have about 75 employees. We're in the corrugated business. We're also in the foam fabricating business, the wooden crate business. Then we also got into the stock box business. My partner at the time was Paul. Instead of Paul and Jerry's box plant, I decided to name the company Wasatch <laughs> Container. After the Wasatch Mountain Range in Salt Lake City, many of you folks have probably skied in the mountains out in Salt Lake, and those are called the Wasatch Mountains. That's where Park City is, Snowbird Altus. Thought it was a little cooler. I think it's a great choice. <laughs> the story of Wasatch begins in 1995, but your story begins far before that in the land of 10,000 lakes in Minnesota. Why don't you take us back to a young Jerry? Simple diet. <laughs> Easier when life was good. I was born and raised in St. Paul, Minnesota. My parents were both from Wisconsin. My dad was the head engineer of paper making of Corner Waldorf, which later got purchased by Champion. So growing up as a youngster, I saw my dad work. I was at his plant many times on Saturdays and Sundays, following him around, and I was always intrigued by making paper. But as I went through school, somehow, someway, I got connected, and I enjoyed graphic arts. I enjoyed printing. Offset lithography, it kind of was moving from letterpress to offset lithography. That got me very intrigued. In high school, I played all the sports and did all of that good stuff. But I also, my last year in senior high, I was a offset pressman for a small print company in Minneapolis. So I got really the taste of manufacturing and printing. So going on to college, I went to the University of Wisconsin Stout, which was a long ways from St. Paul, about 75 miles. I went to Stout because they had a great school for uh, graphic arts management. And I really felt I was going to end up managing a print shop. While going to Stout, I ended up having to take an elective. And one was a packaging course. And I didn't know anything about packaging, like all of us. Nobody knew about packaging. And all of a sudden, I realized that just about everything packaged is printed. And I connected the dots. I ended up with a dual concentration, one in graphic arts management and the other one in packaging engineering. The school still offers both of those. After leaving college, I, had a, I got an entry-level job at a 75-year-old company. 
It was at the time called Flower City Printing and Packaging. We converted the name down to Press Pack, but it was a small, independently owned folding cart and rigid box company. And you go in as a designer? Nope. I went oh, in really? as just the new kid on the block. <laughs> just And everybody was 60 and above, it seemed. Wow. Just step back for a minute, and you said, as a senior in high school, you got a job working at a print shop. Were you forced into that by your parents, or were they asking you to get a job? I just wanted to. I went through a program back then. It's called VICA, Vocational Institute, Clubs of America. So I went to school half days, and half days I worked in a print shop. What did you learn as a 17-year-old kid in a print shop? I learned working with people. Schedules, I learned quality, and I learned on time. Mm. We just did a lot of the printing there, and it was a great job. So I actually had a real-world taste of working in a print shop. When your dad was on the papermaking side, and as you said, as a young kid coming through that, was Horner Waldorf making folding carton stock? They did. So kind of interesting, these roads are starting to converge for you. Yep. They had four paper machines, two made container board, which I never knew much about, and the other two made recycled box board. Oh, interesting. Yep. Now you're this new kid at Flower City Press Pack. What do they have you doing? Oh, by the way, one of the best things when I was going to college, I forgot about this, I worked at Horner Waldorf in the summer jobs because they had so many people wanting to leave or take vacations. So they hired about 60 to 80 people, kids, and mostly kids of the workers. And we worked the crappiest jobs I've ever worked, catching behind a rotor gravier, stacking for a 77-inch offset press was one year. One year I worked all on the roofs, but it was great money. God, it was great money and it was a great job. So Anyways, I learned manufacturing. When I went to work at Flower City, actually, I was just the young boy on the street, and that's all. It was in North Minneapolis, a very tough neighborhood in a small, crappy building. But I started working more in the estimating department, learning how to do estimates, which really taught me a great financial perspective. It's really helped me understand costs. It's also helped me learn machine routing, waste, productivity, contribution, although we didn't look at words that way. We looked at markups and all that. For those ELs, Jerry, why don't you just touch on uh, an estimate back in those days? I was pre-computer running estimates. And for context, what year are we talking? We're talking 1975. Yeah. All paper and pencil <laughs> with big erasers yeah. and looking in books and calling suppliers and all that stuff. Estimating was a total mechanical thing. You had yeah. to learn how to do math and you had to understand decimal points. A lot of conversions from fractions to decimals and a lot of, like you said, yep. a lot of erasers, a lot of starting over. And really, yep. you were keeper of your own reconciliation. You could easily transpose or create some math errors that could be pretty impactful when the job came in. Absolutely, yeah, because if you did it wrong, your salesman would either get the job or they'd lose the job Yeah, based on how your estimate was. Kind of an aggressive start. You, it is. You getting thrown into that. What was a 22, 23-year-old Jerry Frisch like? Were you grinding and pushing and learning at all times, or were you free-spirited and just having a good old time? I'd have to say I was probably more free-spirited at the time when you're 20, 24. Now, keep something in mind. I met my girlfriend in college, and I kept hanging out with her, and eventually I married her, and that's Paula. So Paula kept me a little bit on the straight and narrow, <laughs> but it was interesting times for sure. She is from Menominee, Wisconsin. She went to Stout. I met her at Stout. Wow. What did she study? She was studying early childhood development. Maybe that's how she got to understand me. <laughs> Maybe I was her casework. But going back to Flower City, I did the estimating and I want to share this with everybody. 
I also always volunteered to help other people out. And I learned customer service, which was different back then. I learned purchasing. I learned scheduling. And the company I always helped in event planning, which was interesting. Is that all because you were just raising your hand? Hey, can I help out? I just raised my hand. And then when a salesman was out of the office, I'd always fill in by doing that too. So I think by offering my time to others and taking on more responsibilities, learning, I believe that was my pathway to moving up in the company. And I suggest everybody to do this. Was it just this mentality or desire to learn or were you saying to yourself, oh, I can make another dollar an hour? I was a blend, but I've always been curious about everything. And I think that's helped. What was your ultimate goal at that point in your career? What did you see yourself doing? Was it just whatever you could get your hands on at the moment? Or did you see yourself having a company yourself long-term? My ultimate goal was just getting through till Saturday. (laughs) I'm familiar with that. Getting through to Saturday. But also I get bored quickly. And I think by taking on more and learning keeps you from boredom. Yeah. But I also believed strongly that you want to create your future. Don't wait for somebody to think about your future. So I tell all young people, raise your hand more, ask for more responsibilities. You'll be recognized and you'll move up. Was there ever a moment of apprehension that you thought, okay, I'm getting myself into something. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Or were you just willing to just take it by the horns? Yeah, I think I was just willing, but I also had some great mentors there. At Flower City? Yes. Really, right out of the gate. They obviously saw your work ethic and that you were jumping in all kinds of stuff. Who was one of your early mentors? There were two of them. John Gullick, who ran all of our printing operations and folding carton operations. And then Herb Deer, who was in sales, estimating he was just one of these guys that had everything. It's interesting. You had two disciplines very early on in your career the ops and the sales, yep. obviously taking an interest in you. How old were these gentlemen at the time? Oh gosh, they were uh, late fifties. So I don't know if they thought I was a son they didn't have, or they just enjoyed the youth and the generational differences, but no, we hit it off big. I've been to all their homes and attended certain events and knew their kids, but cruising along eventually ended up in sales, which was a scary thing back then. Cause I didn't have any sales training with my mentors. And the owner, they knew I was ambitious and I wanted to grow. That is what really helped me out. It was within a couple of years, I was promoted as sales manager. Again, maybe that's because there wasn't a lot of competition for me. And then I became a vice president of the company, which allowed me to start now studying the numbers, looking at equipment and start figuring out more suppliers. And then at 31 years old, I became the president of the company. Do you and Paula have any children at this point? Yep. And then we have two children and a third one on the way. How big's the company at the time? So at the time, about $10 million in sales. Go back to when you were promoted to sales manager. Was that the first time you had been a manager? Yes. So a lot of times we've talked about this, you're a successful sales guy. And just by default, you become a manager. How was that transition? I think because I had a strong work ethic and I had a strong personality, I think 80% of the people acknowledged it and enjoyed it and did it. I also jumped right in and helped all our salespeople, helping them to secure other business, went out with them and listened to their customers' needs and complaints and issues. And I could bring it back and straighten those out. I just thought about it. I also took a Dale Carnegie course. Oh yeah. Which back then was a very big deal and how to win friends and influence people. You're glossing over a pretty interesting thing. I think Joe's trying to unpack. You're a sales manager, probably what, 27 years old. You've made this kind of reputation for yourself as a guy who's willing to pick up any bucket of water and just start running with it. And it's obvious that people were attracted to that leadership style. How many salespeople did you have 
at the time you get promoted and how much older are they than you? There's got to be a few bumps along the way. How did you manage through some of that stuff? Yeah, I actually had about six salespeople. Jeez. And the average age was probably 45. So they're looking at you like, who the hell is this yeah. punk? And what is he going to teach me? Yeah, who is this punk? <laughs> you just have to work through it. You said something interesting, though. You didn't talk at all about how you led them. You said, I helped them close business and I helped them get some things done operationally. That just struck you as the best way you could help them be successful or somebody communicate that to you? I mean, where does that come from? I think you just learn that naturally, but also maybe through some education and training. I think that's the role of a manager is to make your people better. How to help your people not to throw up gates and how to make them better and better and better. And that's what you need to do. It's pretty impressive that at 26, 27, you had already picked up on that. And it seems to me like even early in your career, you're willing to do almost anything to get the job done. Jerry, do you remember when you took over as sales manager, was the company at 10 million already? Did you provide some good growth in there? about seven, eight million. That's impressive. And then I started growing the business. Was there one owner at the time and how active were they? Now you got to go back 35, 40 years ago. Ed Law, the owner of this company was really inactive. He was a paper making guy who bought this company, but in his retirement, he'd travel all over and he'd traveled to lands that I've never even heard of. And he said, Jerry, I'm going to be gone in six weeks. He and his wife, Betty, and they'd leave and I'd never hear from them. Well, those were all long distance calls, yeah. $7 a minute, right? Yeah. No faxes, no computers, no nothing. And he'd come back in five, six, seven weeks and show up. And uh, most time it was great to see Ed, but sometimes he'd come in and say, I just saw the last PL and we're losing money. And why are we working Saturday? And he'd be in the plant raising hell and shaking everything up. I talked to him and said, Ed, come in here in private. Let me talk to you about why we're working this. Did you realize we landed a new big piece of business? We had to do, oh, didn't know that. Oh, did you know this? I know that. So it was, it was bizarre to work for an owner that was very inactive. The Eagle style of management where they fly in, they shit all over everybody and then they fly out. Shit all over and take the profit. Yeah. <laughs> but he gave me a lot of opportunity. If you could take me back to when you were 31, you get put in the position of president. You have two young kids, one on the way. Yep, one on the way. Paul is at home or is she working at? She's at home. She's at home with the kids. Yep. And what kind of grind were you running day to day to try to make that business succeed? I was all in. You were all in. I worked very hard and a lot of hours, but I had a very supportive wife. Your partners will help you in your journey in life, in whatever you're doing. Paula was a great partner. But let me carry on and tell you a couple yeah, other yeah. interesting stories. So during that time, the owner, did mention I should join the National Paperboard Packaging Association. And they catered to the folding cartons slash rigid box independence, which has since dissolved. And now the AICC has a lot of those guys. It was just like joining the AICC. You get to know a lot of people. You get to understand certain businesses and things. And I met Dwayne Sanford there, who was a vice president of Utah Paper Box. The owner of Flower City and Paul Kaiser decided they thought it'd be good that they'd get to know me. So... I got to know Paul at Utah Paper Box. What year was this? I would guess 87, 88. Okay. And Paul and I developed a friendship. He'd come to Minnesota in the summer. I'd show him Flower City. We told him all about our production this and our selling of this and our quality systems. And I'd go out in the wintertime to East Salt Lake and we'd study how they're doing things and share just good business practices. So we developed a great friendship over the time. I want to share something. Now I'm the president of Flower City. In 1989, while at a board director's meeting, and to my surprise, the owner 
all of a sudden he laid down a perspective from a business broker to sell the company. I was stunned. Just say the least. I was hurt and stunned. You were appointed president in what year? About 85, 86. So you've just invested a significant amount of your time, effort, and energy over the last, call it five years, growing this business. Yep. You grew it as a sales manager. You grew it as a vice president. You've grown it as a president and now out of nowhere. He's going to sell it. He's going to sell it. Were you at the top of your mountain at that point? This was your destination job for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Plus, you've got two of the biggest names in customers in the Minnesota market. You're president. You've got growth, fair amount of autonomy because you said he would disappear at weeks at a time. So where did your mind go right when he says, I'm selling? By now, I have three children. As I mentioned before, I met Paul Kaiser, who owned UPB, and he was stunned too. So we decided the idea of buying the company. And so with the right formula, we had my drive and Paul's money. We started negotiating. We did not get the business because through the negotiations, every time we talked, the price of the stock went up and the percent went down. And we just decided that it was time to get out. You had to feel gutted. Yep. All a step deep in the back. The owner and I met and he basically told me through this process that I created enemies in my team. My team didn't want to work for me anymore. I didn't know that. I did not realize that, but that can happen when you're in that position. I think there was a lot of jealousy and all of that stuff. Over lunch, we decided that I was no longer needed and I just let go. Now, I have three little mouse at home, plus Paula and no job. We're obviously sitting here with you and can see your emotion 30 some years later. You put a lot of your heart and sold into this company and, uh, and grew it from 7 million to north of 17. And they yep. basically just snap a rug yep. out from under you. At the time you must've been crushed. I'll tell you what, it's a lot. It's probably like a divorce. I've never been divorced, but something tells me it's similar. And I really thought my whole life was going to be centered in Minneapolis. Thought it was going to be the next 30, 40 years, but it didn't turn out that way. And how long after that did you say, screw this, I'm, I'm going to go win somewhere else? So what happened is I'm out of work. I worked out a little bit of a severance package, which was good, but I'm also a very good saver and I didn't have to make a fast decision, but it was a lonely time. Anyways, I did have several job offers in Minneapolis. I want to just angle into that a little bit. You just basically run this company. We always talk about this, Joe and I, you are an employee that act like an owner. Absolutely. And now all of a sudden somebody's like, why don't you come here and be a assistant vice president for us, Jerry? It's got to be shocking. It's you're high up on the mountain and then you got knocked down, right? Yeah. And yeah, mentally it's tough. Yeah. Now I'm starting to scrounge around looking for other opportunities. And my uncle made a good comment to me. He said, Jerry, I'm very proud of you. When that happens, people fall down in the gutter and they either stay there all the time or they pull their bootstraps up and get rolling. He says, and you're rolling. Damn. That's a good point. We're all going to get knocked off the perch or off, off the mountain. So depends what you do. But in Minneapolis, I didn't see any real opportunities. I was just a little scarred from the whole deal. Why go work for another owner who could wind up doing the same thing to you? Do the same thing. But anyways, as I told you, Paul Kaiser and I became friends and PK, we know him as PK. He tossed out this idea and he says, why don't you just sell all that stuff? Pack those kids up in a car and come on, move out to Salt Lake City. He says, if you do that, Utah Paper Box will hire you. I said, in what role? He says, I I don't know. But he says, I know good people. 
are hard to find and will fit you in somewhere. Well, that's interesting. And then he says, you know, you might find it could be a new good life, a good start. So I chuckled at that and I thought that was some real crazy talk. That's as crazy talk as anything I've ever heard. Pack up and move. So anyways, Paul and I talked over several weeks and we talked about the idea of moving to Salt Lake. So here's where it gets weird. One night I had a dream. It sounds like a crazy story, but I had a dream and the dream went like this. I dreamed that Paula and I were now in our mid seventies and we were sitting rocking on the porch in Minneapolis. And we started talking about what would have been like to take that opportunity. Mm. What would that have been like? As we're rocking again, we spent the next 40 years living here in Minneapolis, doing something. And I remember we wondered about how my career might have turned out. We wondered if the family would enjoy it. We worried about missing our family and friends. We thought about the challenges and the excitement of moving. And then I got so excited to think about living in the mountains, fishing the streams, exploring all the wide open spaces, visiting the national parks and meeting all the new people. Very exciting for sure. Then I thought about, Ooh, let's not forget about all those ski resorts out there out West. So anyways, that was my dream. That's crazy. I woke up the next morning. I didn't have a job. So Paul and I sat and had coffee. And I told her about my dream. And I said, I wonder what it would have been like if we'd have taken that chance. She looked at me, we looked at each other and said, what the hell, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. So in the next few weeks, we ended up putting the house up for sale, sold a lot of our stuff, had the moving trailer come in, and then we packed up. Now, the good news is I only made a two-year commitment to Utah Paperbox because it's not forever. You have to just do a easy commitment because you got to always come back home. <laughs> so we said goodbye to our family, all of our friends, and we moved out west. Within a short period of time, we fell in love with the inner mountain area and we never did move back. Jeez. That's incredible. Jerry, you're making my eyeballs sweat. <laughs> How old were your kids? See, Lauren's about two and Ryan's about eight and Andrew's about 10. That's crazy. And we packed up it all in a Jeep and drove out and spent a week getting out there, hitting the Black Hills and Yellowstone, and finally to our house. You must have obviously had a great deal of respect for Paul that he's basically telling you, we'll figure something out. You're just good people, and you're willing to take that chance. I did. The one thing that was difficult is mentally thinking, okay, I had the corner office. I made those decisions, got the people together, figured out what to do. We carried it forward. Now, all of a sudden, I am a worker bee. I'm a worker bee. My first office at UPB was up in the accounting area with four other people tucked in a corner with no window, no nothing. There it was. It's nuts. It was interesting going there because a lot of the older people said, oh, who's this kid? Oh, he's going to buy the company. Oh, he's going to fire Paul. Ooh. Rumors and conjecture go wild. All the rumors. All I'm trying to do is figure it out and go skiing. Yeah. <laughs> Back to the same mindset. Just get to Saturday. <laughs> That's exactly, I just wanted to get through to Saturday. So anyways, my role actually at UPB is tell Paul some management advice, I'd say. I purchased a lot of equipment. I did go to Europe a couple of times and other places, bought Bob's die cutters and window machines and printing presses, which was interesting. And then also I developed a sales strategy for the West Coast. I'm selling packaging in Los Angeles, Seattle. I did some business up there, San Francisco, Hawaii. Jackson Hole. Wow. And then the Western Slope of Colorado. Man, tough places to go. <laughs> yeah. That's what Paul said. How the hell did you land all those in those nice areas? I said, why would I want to go to Fargo? But after about three years, 
I got restless. It was still exciting. It was still all good. Late 80s, early 90s? About 93, 94. And I decided to search for another opportunity. I wasn't quite sure what I was looking for, but I did meet with some people. I did have job offers all out of state because Utah at the time was not much, but I just didn't want to leave Salt Lake and I didn't find anything that intrigued me. But along my way, I recognized the need for a corrugated sheet plant because I could see the landscape because I was always in the packaging and I thought I found a need for that. But being a folding carton and a rigid box guy, I really looked down on corrugated. Sorry about <laughs> that. <laughs> I was used to printing all those beautiful graphics on SBS paperboard. And I always thought corrugated was just brown with black ink that said this side up. <laughs> just wasn't as sexy. But I did see an opportunity for a short run specialty corrugated box plant. With that, I started putting together a business plan. I actually back then used paper and pencil and racers, but my original plan was to be a corrugated sheet plant, but then eventually we would manufacture other forms of packaging. I actually wanted to be almost like a broker. I was always envious of a broker who could sell a folding carton, put it in a display and a corrugated shipper. And I thought, wow, oh, man, that sounds cool because then you surround your client and you offer them yeah. more services. So I thought the corrugated would be a good entree to that. I also always imagined that we'd do other manufacturing of packaging. I just thought we'd keep expanding it all the way. So then I had to write a business plan, like all entrepreneurs, and you have to start putting down, what are you going to do? You're going to serve. What customers are you going to go after? Then you had to figure out at some point how much money you need. And then you have to figure out where you're going to be located. And then what kind of equipment, what kind of people. That's a key thing of writing a business plan. And look only in the short term, don't try to figure out what five, 10, 20 years looks like, because really you got to get through the first five years. You've all heard those statistics. Yeah. 80% of all businesses started today will be gone in under five years. If you're ever going to start a business, no matter what it is, is always write up a business plan. This business plan is a puzzle and you got to put together a lot of pieces of that puzzle to try to make that thing happen. It can be overwhelming. So what are you doing this? As you're working with UPB. I'm still working at Utah Paper Box while I'm putting this together. Airplane rides and on weekends, my mind's thinking. That's nuts. That's a key thing. I still employed starting another business and that's kind of rare for a lot of people. So at least we could feed ourselves. Then eventually I talked to Paul about starting it and he agreed to do that. So he knew upfront what we're all doing and he was going to be my partner. It's interesting how receptive he was. Now it speaks to the respect he has for you in that he knows you're trying to do something that sees enough in you and, and it has enough respect for you that says, okay, I'm, I'm willing to participate. Yeah. And I think that's very true of Paul. I think he also felt confident and wanted to keep me in the family. Yep. Paul and I started out, we owned between us 79% of the business. He had other people working at Utah Paper Box that wanted to be partners. We had eight partners. Jeez. Which is kind of insane. You mentioned something to us in our pre-screening call, which I think was pretty valuable. And you said, pick your partners wisely. Absolutely. Explain. Do they have the same ambitions and goals from both a financial and a growth perspective? It takes years and years and a lot of money to ever be profitable. Trust is critical between each partner. And then also, what are the roles of each partner? Are there roles? And are they going to be active or are they going to be inactive? In other words, I always call it like who's who in the zoo and who's tending what. Yeah. You know, when we were starting Wasatch, I had a couple of neighbors. One was a very successful home builder. One was an orthopedic surgeon. And I could have easily asked those gents to throw some money in and sell them stock and whip that whole thing out. The thing that I didn't want about that 
is they would be investors and they knew nothing about the packaging world. They knew nothing about manufacturing, nothing about any of that stuff. So I think if you're going to start a business, yes, you need the financial side of it. And I think Paul brought that to me. I understood the other part of it, but unless investors really understand what you're doing, I think that's a dangerous thing. Trying to explain to them why you can't give them money this year and you need to buy a new press or you need to do something is the challenge. I think you have to be sure your partners are all on the same page. And did you believe that at the time with the people you were in business with? Yes. And we looked at it all as a long-term shot. The key thing, before we started Wasatch, we had a meeting at Paul's house with the partners and we worked on this thing and I wasn't knowledgeable at the time of really what those were, a buy-sell agreement. Yeah. Wow. If we had not done that, I can tell you Wasatch would not be where it's at. But we talked that evening all about death of partners. Somebody they're getting remarried. Somebody all of a sudden, their kids in their business. We talked about somebody gets a new family and now more kids in the business. We talked about all of the potential problems and we almost didn't start the company because of that. Those are really deep challenges to think about. And I'm sure that everybody who's a second or third generation can relate to exactly what I'm talking about. So be clear to understand that who can own the business, the stock, and you really never want uninvited partners into your business, period. Oh, and then the last thing I just want to share, establish a price, a value of the stock, a buyout before you ever start. That has kept me friends with all my partners and bought them all out. That's what I was going to ask you. Of the eight, you then became 100% owner of the company. That's remarkable. And I think so few people want to step into that pool up front that you all did, especially with buy-sells and trying to get that hammered out well in advance. That's important. Very important. Was Paul going to provide you with the autonomy to take this new entity that you're creating in the direction and vision that you saw, or did it require you to be regularly selling the concept to this new group of partners? I think he allowed me total to use my vision on whatever it was. That's impressive. This guy had some serious trust in you. I'm going to ask you later on mentors, but I have to imagine this guy is right there at the top. It was. And I think what's cool is PK and I are both mentors, I think, to each other. Yeah. You don't find people like him a lot of times your whole life. I need to share a story with you guys. We had to figure out where we're going to put this. And Paul says, I'm not going to do it unless we build a building. I'm going, okay, yeah, build a building. Okay. (laughs) How big? 30,000 square feet. Okay. Okay. And then how much is that? And it's like a million, $200,000. And I'm sitting there, I don't even have a sale going on yet. I don't even have a customer in order. (laughs) And I'm going deep in debt. We've always been 50, 50 on everything. So one Sunday. I had to go out to see the contractor to see something on the building. And I asked my son, Ryan, to join me. And Ryan at the time, 13, 14 years old, obviously didn't want to come. But I said, Ryan, if you come with me, it'll just be a short time. And then we'll go play around a round of golf. And I lured him in. We went out to this golf course. It was just us two. And the uh, starter said, hey, do you mind if some other guy joins you to make three of you? And I said, no, that's fine. And it turns out to be this guy from Philadelphia. I'll never forget 
So he asked me what I'm up to. And I told him that we're starting a box company. And within hopefully about four months, we're going to be up and running. And he smiled and he said to me, Jerry, I've always wanted to own my own business. And I was curious and I asked him, why is that? We all know the answer. Why do you want to own your own business? And it's all money. You just want to drive a new Cadillac and be rich, right? (laughs) I still asked him the question. And he told me the reason I was so wrong. I was so stunned with his answer. He told me the reason he wanted to own his own business is it would be the last time some SOB will tell him it's time for a career change. <laughs> I laugh so hard. I thought of my past. I think about all the people I know in life that some SOB told him it's time for a new career path. And he gave me the inspiration to make Wasatch a success. That's crazy. That was a big part of my success. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> Almost like it your is. dream. It's another sign. We hear these stories, John Bird, on the previous episode of being unemployable as an owner. Yeah. And yeah. it's almost the same thing here. You know, you start business because you don't want to work for somebody. Yep. You want to do your own thing. You want to have your own autonomy. So your building is going up. You're now deep in debt. You have no money for it. You don't have a single customer. Yep, no customer. Your kids are at home. They're young. Yep. And so how long after you decided to do your own thing did things get up and running and you get your first order? It was probably at least a year and two, three months. We did have a couple of clients. They were actually customers of Utah Paper Box. I was able to go talk to them and they basically said, look, if you take care of us as well as you say you're going to take care of us, and you're the cheapest guy in the block, you bet we'll support you. Yeah, but you better be the cheapest guy in the block. <laughs> the cheapest guy in the block, and you better have good quality and support as well. So we had a little bit of a base, and then also Utah Paper Box orders corrugated too. So we had a little bit of some, but nothing to make the payments or anything like that. And then I had to buy equipment, and I was not a member of the AICC, so I didn't know. And somehow I got a hold of Pat Zaney, and I told him what I was up to, and he says, what kind of machine would you like to buy? And I said, I don't know, just a machine that just makes boxes and just something that's just kind of standard. So we ended up buying a printer slaughter. We bought a stitcher. We bought Thompson die cutter, four bar slitter. Everything was used and old except the Thompson die cutter and the slitter. At this point, are you still splitting time pretty evenly? Oh yeah. When do you sleep? I didn't sleep much (laughs) and I worked a lot of hours, even more, because you're building this. Now you're on the hook. So one is for your daily bread. Yep. The other one's build your future. You know, what's funny is I called Ryan and I said, tell me about your dad growing up. He said, as hard as he was working, he was as active as any dad would be. How the hell did you have time to do it all? I guess time management, not letting the grass grow underneath your feet. You just keep moving. I got to take a second, obviously, and we're sitting across from you and I'm going to stare in a space so I don't get emotional. Yeah. I've never seen this side of you and it's remarkable. It really is. Thank you. You're an incredible human being. Thank you. As you were juggling both UPB and Wasatch getting going, how long did it take before you started taking money from Wasatch in the form of salary? At least three to four years (laughs) before I had a check out of Wasatch. Wow. And how many people were working for Wasatch at the time? We probably had 20, 25 employees. Joe talks about this, you know, walk around AICC and seeing guys like you and and some of our former podcasters and the way they are today, they don't realize the sacrifice that went into creating that. You said in the pre-screening call, you don't truly know what it's like to run a business until you have to make payroll. Do you have any times you couldn't really figure out how you're going to make payroll that week? So we're in our 28th year today and, and I always kept enough money in my personal savings account to cover payroll. I always had that money 
somewhere. That was my greatest stress for at least the first 15 to 17 years. Unbelievable. Is making payroll. While you're growing. We're trying to fund growth. And then on Monday morning, we'd know how much we owed in payroll. We'd have to try to figure that out. And then Tuesday and Wednesday, we'd keep trying to pile it up. You got to make payroll. And that's the toughest challenge in all these businesses. We've all felt it. We've all seen it. Because if you stop making payroll, your employees will start leaving you. Do you have any people that are still with you today in those 28 years that have stuck by the company? We actually have about six employees that have been there 22 years and more. That's great. I feel very proud of that, that they risked their career and they've believed in you. They believed in me. And some of them are in the sales. Some of them are in the office and some are in the plant. When you start this business, you've got some things ironed out with your partners. You're starting to hire and attract employees. What is your philosophy and your style of, of leadership? My guess is he's going to say he's going to roll up the sleeves and get on the floor with these guys <laughs> and try to figure it out with them. Yeah, a lot of equipment he didn't know how to work. I'm sure he learned how to work at all. I don't really have a business philosophy that anyone would write a book in and sell millions of copies. I don't think I do that. I think I have a pretty open door. I speak right from the heart. I tell people exactly where I want to go, where I think we should go. I ask for their opinions. I get their advice and I go from there. And then I keep, I follow up a lot. I follow up an awful lot. Maybe to the extreme, it drives people nuts. But if somebody says they're going to do something, I'll remember that. How much are you on the floor at your place? Not as much today as I used to be, but in the past, all the time. Yeah. Now, I don't know how to run those machines. I don't know where the buttons are, but I do know what they're capable of doing. Yeah. Getting Wasatch up and going, still working for UPP. How many years after you got Wasatch going before you couldn't do both? Probably about six years. Well, that's a long time of juggling too. Yep. Paul said, it looks a little odd you running this and working here and all that stuff. So I think it's time. It's probably time. What turned out happening though, I, uh, I'm still affiliated with Utah Paper Box and I still manage certain accounts through them and the same accounts that I lot of sell, a lot of corrugated to. I'm kind of living that broker dream as far as servicing those customers with all of the things. You stop juggling both around the turn of the century. And then at that point, you just dive 100% into Wasatch. I think it was a slow walk into it more and more. And I'm still 90-10. It used to be 50-50. Over the years, we become a larger company, more diverse, and so forth. I'd love to just tell you some of the things that has happened. So... Again, in 1995, we bought almost all old used junk. If we have second or third generation people listening, it's probably how your father started it. That's how yes. I built Wasatch with all the equipment and all that stuff. But it wasn't until about 2008 that I had our first FlexoFolder Gluer. Wow. So we were grinding away. Again, I had this vision always to be a more diverse packaging company. And that was part of my chairmanship here was all about diversity and what you're manufacturing, what you do. I remember vividly, we were sitting in a winter board meeting in a conference room and Jerry started presenting, what does the I really stand for and what other opportunities lie in the packaging space? Yep. And that was really born out of this, how do we provide more to our customers? And at the same time as an association, expand our reach. That was all of Jerry's drive. So he mentioned Pat Zaney. He's the one that introduce you to AICC? Nope. He got me into the corrugated business. Okay. And then somehow I became a member of the AICC, but I didn't attend a meeting for two, three years because I couldn't afford it. <laughs> and back then it was really cheap, but it was still very expensive. The first meeting I ever went to was down in Las Vegas. 
Because, okay, I can drive. I can't afford to fly on crazy. So I drove to Las Vegas and attended this meeting with a sea of 900 people. Oh, you know, just walking around. Again, thinking that corrugator was just a brown box with this side up, down, dirty <laughs> business. I had a call when I was sitting in my hotel room. It was Mike Fedrick. It's nuts. He was at OCC or was he with, still at Bay Cities? Oh, yeah, OCC. And he says, hey, Jerry, you're from Salt Lake. We need to see each other. I've been going to Salt Lake for all these years and blah, 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 blah. He invited me up to his room and he had this big fancy room. And uh, and I got to know Mike and thought, wow, he's quite an interesting character. That was one of my first tastes of the ICC. But then I met so many other people. But it was a long time till I could afford to come here. But then I got connected. How have those relationships you've built at AICC helped you at Wasatch? All with just meeting you guys, meeting everybody through my journey. I think that's been one of my real anchors to be successful. I'm also in a CEO group with other independents that are some stellar operators that really have a good understanding of the market from anywhere from brown boxes, to digital printing to the whole thing. Yeah. So now the AICC has, has for sure helped me grow our business. And now our kids are involved and now we have other employees get involved. It's a great format for everything on that. How did you get started with the foam side of your business? We had a customer in the foam business and Don Koonsman owned it. And unfortunately in 2000 took ill and he says, Jerry, I want to sell my foam business to you. And I asked how much he wanted and he said, I want nothing down. I just want you to take care of my wife for the next 10 years at $3,000 a month. I thought, that's interesting. And I was young and I said, okay, I'll do it. That sounds good to me. I didn't know what we had. It wasn't that big of a shop, but we got all that equipment and then we moved it over to where our current design center is. So we got in the phone business, but I needed a seasoned manager. I reached out to a friend and he knew Neil Crump, who was a manager over at this company called American Excelsior. So I reached out to Neil and he agreed to work for us part-time and he'd come over and teach us more about the phone. And after about three months, he wanted to come full-time. So it was really great luck. So Neil and I worked well together. And then about six months later, we needed a convoluter foam cutter. So I reached out to American Excelsior and I asked if they'd be interested in selling me their convoluter. I ended up meeting with their area VP as he traveled in. We had one meeting after another meeting and the long and short of it, I ended up buying their whole foam facility. <laughs> I was just looking for a convoluter and ended up with the whole company, <laughs> which was stunning. Is. So now we're in the foam business. We were able to move all under this new big roof, which is about a half a mile from Wasatch's corrugated plant. That building, by the way, is 67,000 square feet. Our corrugated plant's 30. And so then about 2000, I don't know, two-ish or so, I was with one of our salespeople, Brett Mangeter, and we started doing business with Boeing Airlines. And we did corrugated with foam inserts and all that stuff. We were over there meeting with their general manager, and he was very complimentary about Wasatch doing their foam and deliveries and just-in-time and all that stuff. And at that meeting, he says, God, he says, I wish we had a crate supplier as good as you guys. You guys are just stellar. He looked at me and he looked at Brett and he says, do you guys make crates? I looked at Brett. He looked at me. We both winked and we said, absolutely. We're in the crate business. <laughs> great. That's great. <laughs> but we told the general manager and he knew what we're up to. We told him, we said, but we can't probably build a crate for you for probably four to six weeks. <laughs> we're just a little busy right now. We drove off and I said, what the hell did we just get ourselves into? That was how we launched our crate business. It's crazy. I asked Brett, he was in the woodworking business in his prior career, and I knew nothing about wood. And I told him, let's go buy the very best of everything we can possibly buy, whatever that is. And uh, we ended up doing that. We had the space, 
But I'll never forget how much money we invest in that business was less money than I put in our glue system on our Flexo folder gluer. <laughs> wow. You're rolling. We launched a business for, it was about 20,000 bucks. Did you have a previous desire to get into the crate side of things or was that just an opportunity that came up? No, but it was an opportunity and I figured it would help sell more foam. It was just a complimentary product. And it goes back to your vision. Keeping your arms around your customer. So then I told you my past of Utah paper box. I sold a lot of packaging on the Western slope of Colorado, which is always fun to go to. It's from Grand Junction to Durango, you're in Telluride area, you're in all those beautiful areas. So one day I noticed that there was a company called Champion Box and I'd be in so inquisitive, I had to stop in and see what these guys are up to. It was Dale and Chris Vance and they both came out of the government and they started this business and what they did is they took plastic corrugated, die cut it and sealed it and they made art cases. So we got together and visited for the next few years and all that. And one day I said, we ought to start a company and we should try to sell corrugated boxes and do some other stuff and serve the Grand Junction area. And they agreed to it. They thought it was real good. And the long and short of it, we started a company called Grand Mesa Packaging. So that was about 2006. Our big adventure is now we're in Colorado. And that's primarily just a distribution company. Those folks have retired. And now Donna Peterson, she's our partner at Wasatch Container. So we ship down into Colorado and that whole area. It's not a large area, but we created it and made it all happen. And then in 2019, I was approached by the general manager at PCA if we'd be interested in purchasing their stock box division. There was a company years ago called Tharco. Tharco was purchased by Boise. PCA ended up buying... Boise, they didn't buy them for the stock box division. They bought them for their paper mills and their box plants and all that. And apparently the general managers who were told either manage it, sell it or dump it, whatever. So anyways, he called me up and asked me if I had an interest in that. He didn't even know this. We just sold a brand new flexo folder gluer <laughs> and I was looking for work. The timing was perfect. So we ended up acquiring PCA stock box plant. And we've been running that and growing it. And Lauren Frisch, my daughter, oversees that. So she's a stock box queen. 2019 is when the stock box part of your business came on board. Right. When did Ryan and Lauren join Wasatch? Ryan has been there for uh, so far about 12 years. And Lauren's been there for about nine years. I've become friends with them both over the years. And their memories growing up at the plant, scoring by hand, yeah. playing around <laughs> in the boxes. And they've been around the business their whole life. Was it always your intention to try to get them into the business? Was it let them figure things out on their own and hope they get into the business? Or how are you looking at succession planning with your children? I think it's every father's dream. If your kids get in your business, you can work with your kids. If you can have a great family relationship and work with your children, it's like hitting a grand slam. The one thing that I, I demanded with our kids, if they are ever going to come in the business, first, I want them to get at least a good education get a college degree and they've all done that. And they had to work for some company for three to five years outside of Wasatch Container. Be a nobody and try to make themselves a somebody. And that was part of the plan. So Ryan started his career in Seattle. All packed Trojan. Then he came here and Lauren, she went to the University of Colorado at Colorado State. She had more of a finance degree. She went into banking? She went into banking. So she was a teller and uh, she actually had a couple promotions and then she wanted to move outside the commercial banking, more on the institutional banking. 
and she wasn't given that opportunity. So that's kind of led her to come into Wasatch. What was your reasoning behind wanting them to go work for somebody else before letting them just jump into the business? I think the idea to be a nobody, you know, you're a nobody coming out of college, I think, and try to make your way, find your way, figure out what it is. Ryan worked for years, the summer jobs, his summer job was in our design center and we'd always give him the crappy jobs and all that stuff. So yeah, I think he enjoyed the packaging world, but he needed to go somewhere else. I also think uh, having our kids attend the AICC meetings, they started getting to know people. They're pretty outgoing and they got to know a lot of people. And at the time, Wayne Millich was running Alpac Trojan and we talked to Wayne about it. So that's another great benefit of being connected with the AICC. So many of the comments and feedback that Joe and I get is about this kind of generational dynamic in the business. And, and can you speak to how your kids tactically are coming up through the business, but then obviously they take on more of a strategic responsibility and how are you dealing with all that? I think kids coming in the business, they need to do what we all did in the very beginning. Brian's been in sales. Lauren has been in sales also, but she's been doing some accounting things, computer software stuff and all of that. I think they need to find their way and they need to develop relationships with all the employees. I think that's a key thing because what really ultimately has to happen is they have to earn their respect. I also think by having your kids start in more of a ground level area, I think you'll find out if they have passion for it. And I think it's very difficult to run any business if you don't have passion. They will develop respect from the people and they'll earn their way all the way through it. I think one of the defining moments is about a year and a half ago, I made them both a vice president of the company and the entire office was complimentary and thanked me for doing that position. So they've earned their respect, they've yeah. earned their colors. And now they understand. And then now the people know who's who in the zoo kind of, right? Yeah. I'm going to start unpacking that a little bit. So you're in the process of an expansion and making an investment and what kind of voice and role do they have in your decision-making, if any, and what are you looking for with respect to their contributions as elevated leaders in the company? I mean, obviously you can't do this forever, but I think the two of us can tell by your passion, you'll do it for as long as you enjoy it. Yep. How do they start to find their way in those discussions? It's interesting as a, as an owner of the company and unfortunately seeing a lot of my brother box makers selling their businesses. Kind of analogy would be, there's a fork in the road and either you go this way or that way. Five, six years ago, I had to make the decision and it was based really with the kids. Are Ryan and Lauren going to come into the business? Do they have the passion? Do they have the skill set? Do they have the respect for the people? That's going down one road or the other road is it's time to sell it. You have to do something. And uh, one thing about me is I am a planner. I do, my brain's always thinking of planning something. So I saw that fork coming down the road. Then we started talking with the kids and the family and saying, Hey, where are we going to go with this? We're becoming a nice sized little business. We had to talk it over. And basically we came to the agreement that I think somebody told me years ago. So we decided let me work on the business and let Ryan and Lauren work in the business. Right. That's incredible. And I've been working in the business all my life. Now I'm trying to work on the business. A couple phases to that. So where we're going from here is like many companies, we've had tremendous growth. Unfortunately, we need more space. And fortunately, I bought a building right next to us. It was a small metal building, but it had two acres of dirt that I really liked. So we ended up taking that building down and uh, we are right now building an 80,000 square foot addition 
to add on to our 30,000 square foot. That's great. Instead of selling the business, we're all in. So coming the end of this year, we'll have our new facility. The whole building will be about 110,000 square feet. We purchased a brand new rotary die cutter, one that will print inside outside in one pass. We bought the Cobus. We're also installing a scrap handling system from Pool, which is a very well-engineered deal. We also purchased a very elaborate conveyor system from Inspire. And then we're putting in a brand new ink kitchen, our ink suppliers, BCM. That's great. So our business plan is not to compete with the integrateds. We don't want to do that. That's not our niche. We want to be a great printer. I don't want to print just this side up. Our goal is to be the best printing company in the Intermountain area. Jerry, you're a high motor guy. As you start this working on the business instead of in the business, how do you start to shift and give some space to your next generation in their ability to be in that business, still counsel them, and then manage that balance of counseling and telling? Oh boy. That's a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. It's challenge to step back. But you know, I think as Ryan and Lauren continue to make good decisions yeah. and drive change and implement certain things, you start stepping back more and more. I think in the very beginning, you're concerned, you're scared, yeah. you don't want somebody to screw it up. Yeah. But I think as they keep taking on more responsibilities and stepping up to the plate, you start doing that. Now, I'm still involved. Sure. Obviously, I go to work every day. I still enjoy going there, but I just got to keep my nose out of certain things. You hit a really good point that I just want to emphasize, and that's that you're observing their decision-making and they're communicating to you, hey, here was the information I had at hand and here's what I decided, which allows you to coach and mentor the decision-making process, not stampede over a decision. But that's no different than managers too. If you have seasoned managers working for you. You got to sometimes ask the question, why did you make that decision? What were you thinking when you made that decision? What was going through your mind? And listen to them and then maybe give them your two cents worth. You just advise them and you just keep advising them and you hope they keep making good decisions. I heard an expression on the farm. You might give them the back 40, but you don't give them the whole farm. If they screw up, they waste away the back 40, you're okay. Yeah. How have you guys balanced family and work? Is there a switch that's turned off when they come in the house for Thanksgiving dinner, or do you guys talk shop regularly outside the business? I want to go back to something. So when I was building Wasatch, all the kids were still young. Paula worked at the company. She worked as she was a receptionist, and then she went into accounting. Her first desk was two boxes with a plywood board across. <laughs> we used to come home, and we used to talk too much shop, and all of a sudden, I put the law down and said, you know what? Dinner's dinner. Let's talk about the kids. Let's talk about our vacations coming up. Let's talk about something else. Yeah. That's a key thing. And I'll tell you what, the one thing that I'm so proud of, I'm very proud of Wasatch, but I'm more proud of my family. We had an awesome Easter weekend. We were all skiing up at Deer Valley. We had a great time. And for some reason, we can cut that off. That's incredible. It's key. It's key because at the end of the day, you want to be remembered about your family, not about your business. Wasatch has been around for 28 years, and it's not easy to, to take that entity and stick it in the hallway and shut the door. And the other dynamic that Joe and I talk a lot about is with entrepreneurs, especially the business and the personal become so interwoven that there are scenarios where those two entities can't exist separately. The entrepreneur can't identify him or herself absent that business and by establishing kind of the ground rules that you're talking about so the family can be the family 
and the business can be the business is kind of preempting this ability to disentangle yourself from this company so you can be Jerry and Paula and the Frisch family separate of this entity. And I think that there's a lot of entrepreneurs and leaders who not only can't do that, but they choose not to. And then the lines are blurred and the heartbeat is the same. And then for one reason or another, they retire or they resign or they're fired. And it could be fired by family, uh, whatever that dynamic is, or they sell the business. They can't survive because they have no identity. The fact that that was laid down early is a big positive. One of the best pieces of advice I've gotten in this industry came from you. And you probably don't even remember it was eight or nine years ago. And we're obviously working together and you knew Tanya and I were married and you looked me in the eye and you said, Joe, you work with your wife every day. You have to find a way to unplug from that and get away and have a relationship outside of work. And that stuck with me and sticks with me today. We try to do that. So many entrepreneurs and their families all end up with one heartbeat. You can't have it. When that heart starts failing, ruins everything. We've always been able to have two different heartbeats. When we moved to Salt Lake, again, we have no relatives there. I have no family. We had to build all the new friends. The best toy I've ever bought was a tent trailer. And man, we went camping all over Colorado, all over Utah, Montana, Canada. That thing, we wore it out. And when you're sitting around fires, marshmallows, they're all drinking soda pops. I'm doing Crown Royal. It's all good. <laughs> but you yes. really develop two different hearts. And then Paul and I have a very great relationship. We've been married for 43 years and uh, we still care about each other, do a lot of great stuff. The last thing I'll say on this, because I know it's real close to your heart, but one of the things Ryan said, and it might be hard for me to get out of my mouth here, but the greatest gift that you guys give him, and I assume your other kids as well, is to take their kids and let them go on a vacation. Just let them have that relationship. He brought that up. It's the best thing that yeah. you do every year for your kids. And get away from the kids sounds bad, but, well, you know, have that time. Well, we came up with a few years ago that for Christmas, we give them allowance and they can leave for three or four days. Ryan, he pushes it. He'll be gone five or six. <laughs> we take care of the kids and dogs and all that. Give them the cash and pay for their airfare and let them go have a great vacation. Here's what's amazing is as we've talked and had this just wonderful conversation with you today is the evolution of just get to Saturday has become, yeah. <laughs> yep. it was, let me go have some cocktails and it morphed into let me be with my family and take these trips to let me be with my grandkids and still this bigger, this growing fresh family. But uh, your meaning of just getting to Saturday and its evolution is just really an incredible testament to who yep. you are, who Paula is. I know you both pretty well and you guys are incredible people. So much of what you've talked about just transcends well beyond your kids as the next generation and applies to the next generation, the 20s and 30s, the ELs in AICC, you don't have to be an owner to act like an owner and think like an owner and behave like an owner. But this entrepreneurial spirit is within certain people. Maybe what are some key lessons and key advice that you would give to, to next gen of entrepreneurs, kids that are in the business now or thinking about going to the business or that may start their own or may work for entrepreneurs? Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. I have a few notes, a few bullet points that I'd love to just throw out. And these are uh, kind of my uh, business philosophies and some of the things that I think got me to where I'm at. I tell young people, find your passion. And then once you're in it, get your head down and plow hard and, and go forward and work hard, work hard and play hard. 
most of you guys know, I have a whole different life of playing hard, doing fun things. I have a lot of different toys when I love to downhill ski. So have fun in life. It also admits into your business when people know you're adventurous and you're doing stuff. Develop and work very hard at finding great mentors. We all need life coaches, but you need to be one yourself. Mm. You can't buy mentors. No. Yeah. You have to earn it. You have to be one. Ask a lot of questions and learn from them. Get to know the people you're asking the questions to. I also said stay focused in all areas of your life. If you let your family go, they will go. If you let your business go, they'll go. So you got to really stay focused and take care of all areas of your life. I also said get to know who you are and who you ain't. Who are you and who ain't you? I sometimes wonder if I know myself. And then I said, have a plan in life as well as in your business. It's a little bit like going on vacation. Just think about that. If you can't, just say you're, just think that you're going to go on vacation next week and somebody says, oh, where are you going? You say, I don't know. Yeah. Are you going to drive or fly or walk? I don't know that either. You going north, south, east, west. I don't know. No, have a plan in life. Stick to the plan. Another thought, always take the high road in life. Always. With employees, in business, and in personal relationships, as well as in family. It has cost me plenty, but it's the greatest payback I've ever had. Yeah. Always be honorable at everything you do. Your word's your word, and let's never forget that. I also wrote, develop great relationships. Another key thing. Am I boring you with these yet? No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Hopefully not. If I have you, just cut me off. Learn from your mistakes and don't beat yourself up too bad. Amen. So all of us will think back on the mistakes we made of a couple of years ago, but we'll all beat ourselves up. Why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. I this and that. But you know what? You got to stop doing that. And what you have to do is think about at the time, that was your best decision you can make based on what you knew. Hindsight is truly 2020. And you beat yourself up over that stuff. And I've done that all my life. I beat myself up on bad decisions. Yeah. But learn, stop doing that. Yeah. I also said, stay in touch with people. Call them. Call them. Just don't email or text. Network. Remember, we all have strengths and weaknesses. Share your strengths with others and ask for help on your weaknesses. I don't ever feel it's a sign of weakness to ask for help. Never. As entrepreneurs, look for opportunities. They're everywhere. That's why I shared the story on Grand Mesa packaging. That's yeah. why I shared the, the foam. I always tell people, you need to look like my dog. She's a Labrador. Her nose is down on the ground and she's sniffing all around. She yeah. looked for opportunities. And I said, clean out your ears, close your mouth and listen to people. That's the <laughs> truth, isn't it? Isn't that true? We've all been told, I'm sure by others. You've made it because you're lucky. Yeah. I'm going lucky. <laughs> I go, hell, I've never won a lottery. I don't even win football pools. I can't even win in golf. So I don't call myself lucky, but what I call the definition of luck is when experience meets opportunity. Yeah. That's the truth. That's luck. The harder you work, the luckier you seem to get. Isn't that, isn't that funny? Absolutely. <laughs> and then I also believe you got to invest in the business as in the people. Some people, they just think they're going to buy this business and never reinvest in it. You'll be out of business and you'll be looking for a job. You got to constantly reinvest in the people and the business. Work very hard to develop strong family as it doesn't come easy, but it's well worth it. And then, um, the last thing I wrote is what Tim McGraw's song, be humble and kind. You'll get you a lot of places. So 
Anyways, that's all I can tell you about Wasatch. <laughs> Jerry, I don't think I've ever seen you quite as naked and sharing as you are with us today. And really, I'm grateful for you doing this. Laughter and some tears and just a wonderful time together. It was very powerful. And then I said this to John when we did his, I'm honored to be at a table with you. And vice versa. And to hear your story and what you've gone through and, the, and to see the success you're having, it's really a inspirational to me. As I said, and opened up the show, there's icons in this industry that I look up to. And I know a lot of people in my shoes and similar demographic in our industry look up to, and you're one of those people. Thank you very much. I second that. Breaking down boxes. New shows will drop the first Monday of every month. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.